0: Let's reset the stage from where we were last week. Recall in Genesis 5, there were the generations of Adam, down to Noah and down to his sons. And Noah was the ninth descendant of Adam. There was Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. A side note I wanted to share with you I thought was kind of interesting. I had a friend in elementary school who told me proudly that his family was descended from Seth. Well, I have a newsflash for all of you. We're all descended from Seth. (laughs) Remember, by doing the math that we figured out the great flood occurred about 1,656 years after God created the earth and Adam. And Adam and Seth lived long enough to see the birth of Lamech, Noah's father. And Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared all lived long enough to see the birth of Noah. And Methuselah, the man who lived the longest on the earth, died the same year as the great flood. And recall, we don't know whether he died in the flood or died before the flood, but he lived all the way up to the year of the flood. And recall that Noah's name means rest. His father thought that Noah would bring the world rest from the toil of the ground that was brought about by the curse. And this is to recall the promise of a deliverer given to Adam and Eve after the fall in the garden. And Enoch, the father of Methuselah, did not die, but rather God took him straight to heaven. And from Hebrews 11, we know that Enoch was considered righteous because of his faith. And he was one of two people that never died up to today. Do you recall the other one? Elijah, Elijah the prophet. And then in Genesis 6, we learned about the sons of God and the daughters of man, We saw that this does not refer to intermarriage or reproduction between angels and humans. Rather, it's a description that talks about the human men and women reproducing at will throughout the earth. But we do know that there was some type of perverse relationship going on, perhaps polygamy. Um, We know that those who followed God intermarried with those who did not. And they chose what was desirable in their eyes over against following the Lord. And the result was great wickedness on the land. And then God said that man's days would be 120 years. It did not mean that people would live longer than 120 years. We saw that there were a number of the patriarchs that lived much longer than 120 years. But a better interpretation is that God was declaring that humankind had 120 years left before it was destroyed. And this fits in the timeline of the chapter. See, God was exercising patience rather than wipe out mankind right then and there. The sin of man was great in the earth. And the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Marriage, the great covenant instituted by God, was now corrupted. It was perverted. And it wasn't limited to a clan or a tribe here or there. It wasn't limited even to a geographic location, like a a valley or a a certain part of, of that world The wickedness was widespread. And not only was man's wickedness great, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And this marked what we understood to be a consuming depravity, a a total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean that every man is as evil as he could possibly be, but it does mean that every man is completely evil from birth. All of him, every part of us is evil. There's no good in us from birth. And sin has affected all of our faculties, all of our thoughts, our intentions, our beliefs, our actions. It's all permeated with sin. And this was the condition of mankind. And it is still today the condition of mankind, despite what you hear in the world that man is good. As a side note, I wanted to tell you that I had a discussion with someone this week who asked for some clarification on whether or not someone is, is good and what that means. And I was asked, couldn't an unbeliever nonetheless do something that is good? I mean, if there's total depravity, couldn't an unbeliever do something that is good? Can an, all, can an unbeliever be altruistic? The person was not doubting the Bible or God's sovereignty or or his righteousness or anything like that, but had an honest question. And there are some questions about that. For example, what if the person really did a heroic thing or performed some kind of service, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a good thing to do? Well, to answer that, we look to Scripture. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans 3:12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Even when we think we're doing good things we still fall short of the mark. For example, what is the motivation for an unbeliever when he does good things? Is it because it's the right thing to do? I'm doing good things because they're right to do? Is it because it's right or good to help someone else? Is it because it's right or good to relieve suffering? But who says that doing so is the right thing to do? Is it man? Is it other people that say that's the right thing to do? Well, if that's the case of their motivation... Are they not doing something because it is good in the eyes of men? They're completely ignoring what is good in the eyes of God. Not doing something because God says it's the right thing to do. They're doing it because man says it's the right thing to do. Well, that begs the question, what should our motivation be when it comes to doing things? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 sums it up. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And 1 Peter 4.10 and 11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, ascribing to all glory to God is a pervasive theme throughout Scripture. And if someone does something but not for the glory of God, can it then be really good? Now, this is not to say that an unbeliever cannot do something that is beneficial for others. An act of kindness on behalf of another still brings benefit no matter who performs the act. But if the standard is not what is pleasing to man, but that which is pleasing to God, it still falls short of the mark. Why is that? Well, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if God is the one who declares what is righteous, and we don't believe him, or don't even believe in him, how could what we do be righteous? How could what we do be glorifying to him who we deny even exists? So here's the rub. As Christians, we often struggle to do the right things with the right motivation sometimes. Sometimes we might want to be noticed or we want to gain approval from others. We read in Matthew 6 where Jesus addressed that situation. He said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Absent faith in Christ, and the intent and motivation informed by that faith, then even a beneficial deed does not measure up. And all this is something to think about when you hear someone being praised as a good person. Jesus told the rich ruler that no one is good except God. So moving on from there, we, we read that the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. And we, we discussed what it meant for the Lord to be sorry. When the Lord was sorry, what did it mean? And I said that this is one of the passages that is difficult for translators. And the best explanation is that the writer is explaining God to us in human terms so that we can understand something of who this mysterious God is, something of his attributes. What we do know is that God is never sorry for something he has done, for that would imply a sense of failure or or mistake or imperfection. So God didn't make mistakes for which he should repent or regret. But he does feel grief and sorrow over what became of his perfect creation. And God is grieved by sin. So God determined to hit the reset button. He will, in essence, start things over. He said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Mankind had deserted its creator and deserved judgment. Does that sound familiar today? Mankind had deserted its creator and deserved judgment. But then we saw that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It meant that he received God's grace. And we learned that Noah was righteous because of his faith. And so we pick up where we left off last week. And once again, we want to look at Genesis 6, starting with verse 11. And please join me as I pray. Father, as we now look into your word, as we continue learning about Noah and, and the flood and the judgment and the ultimate prefiguring of christ father that this points to our lord and savior father we pray for your blessing now father i pray that you call me that you give me your words father help me to convey your truth in jesus name amen so we pick up in, in noah with noah starting with verse 11 in genesis 6 But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of every, and, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Our first point this morning is God's plan. God's plan. You know what? God declared to Noah his judgment on mankind. He's pronounced judgment. Satan had done his work. God's greatest creation, mankind, was corrupted by sin. Man is violent and evil, so much now that God must now destroy him. Let me ask you, what do you do when you find you have a corrupted file on your computer? It's a concern because the corrupt file can affect other files. So generally, you delete the corruption and you start over. Well, man has corrupted the earth and God is going to start over. But God is is also going to save something, someone from the corruption and the destruction. And I'm sure it doesn't surprise you that this was his plan all along. Recall back to the time of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God announced that there would be a deliverer. In Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent and Adam and Eve what would happen. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, God had determined to wipe out humanity, but if he wiped out everyone, then he would not have kept his word because there would have been no deliverer. Mankind would have been wiped out, and Satan would have claimed the victory. No, a deliverer, a redeemer was still to come. So wiping out every man, woman, and child would not have fulfilled this prophecy So by his grace, God chose Noah and his family to preserve mankind. And to do this, God gave Noah explicit instructions. He told Noah to build an ark. He told Noah what type of wood to use, gopher wood. He told Noah to make rooms in the ark and to cover it with pitch. He told Noah what the dimensions of the ark should be. He told Noah to put a roof on the ark at a certain level, to put a door in the side. To make three levels inside the ark. And then he told Noah to bring two of every sort of living flesh to keep them alive. Male and female. Birds according to their kinds. Animals according to their kinds. And every creeping thing according to its kind. And God told Noah to bring every sort of food. Not just some food. Every sort of food. And then we see in verse 22 that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You know, Moses was also given some specific commands. And in Exodus 7, at the start of the 10 plagues, we read that Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. And when the tabernacle was being built, we read over and over in Exodus 39 and 40 that things were done as the lord had commanded moses doing all that god commands is a hallmark of faith and obedience let me say that again doing all that god commands is a hallmark of faith and obedience hebrews 11:7 says by faith noah being warned by god concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah put his faith into action, just as James exhorts us to do. Today, too many people think that all we need for salvation is faith. And that's partially true. Hear me out. Faith is what is required. But what is needed is not mere faith, but genuine faith. And there is a difference. There is just mere faith. There's a head knowledge. I believe this to be true. But there's a heart knowledge. A genuine faith. Genuine faith is demonstrated in our actions. There are sadly those who do not think that they need to obey Christ. They just don't, they don't need, to believe, need to believe him beyond just believing him. They don't need to obey beyond just believing him. See they preach that his grace is sufficient. They preach what's called a free grace theology. Yes, Christ's grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for us. And yes, it is free. But they stop there. They stop just at that point. They deny the need to trust Jesus as their lord. They deny the need for repentance. They deny the need for submission. So their faith is a a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge, because they don't follow through with what their heart involves. But we must ask then, if there's no outworking of your faith, how do you know you're saved? How can you be assured of that? If you don't earnestly desire to follow Jesus, or you affirmatively refuse to follow his commands, what does that say about your faith? If you just don't want to do what he tells you to do. If you... Don't care, or if you deliberately don't do what he tells you to do? What does that say about your faith if you refuse to celebrate the Lord's Supper, or if you refuse to be baptized to the ordinances commanded by Christ? What does it say about your faith if you do not love others as Christ loves you? What does it say about your faith if you refuse to forgive others even as you have been forgiven? You know, last week someone speculated on whether or not Noah was a a carpenter and how he was able to build the ark. Well, God provides the means to carry out his will. He provided Abraham with a ram to sacrifice instead of Isaac. Abraham had predicted so when he told Isaac God would provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. You know the the account of, of Abraham offering Isaac or going to offer Isaac. But yet God provided that ram. And when Moses oversaw the construction of the tabernacle, God filled Bezalel with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. In addition, he appointed Oholiab to assist him. And God gave to all able men the ability to make all that he commanded. So it's not hard to imagine that if Noah had little or no carpentry skills, that God nonetheless enabled him to obey. In the same way, there should be no doubt that Noah did not have to chase down a a male and a female of every kind of bird and animal and creeping things after making the ark. I I have to ask you, do you know the difference between a male and female grasshopper? Or a male and female banana slug? (laughs) Genesis 6.20 said that the animals would come to him. Noah didn't have to chase them down. He didn't have to determine whether they were male or female. God brought the animals to Noah, brought them to him. And that's how God provided. Today, God enables us to obey. He gives us the same resources he provided Jesus when Jesus was tempted. You remember when he was out in the wilderness... Jesus relied on what? Scripture. He knew the scripture. And he quoted the scripture to Satan in the midst of temptation. And quoted back truth. And even when Satan kind of twisted scripture, Jesus corrected him on it. But Jesus had one other resource that we have today, that you have if you're saved, and that is the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He'd been anointed by the Holy Spirit See, Jesus, when he faced temptation in the wilderness, faced temptation as a man. And unlike Adam, he resisted the temptation. He did not sin. And he did not sin using the means that we have available to us. He has not left us unarmed. He has not left us without an out. Noah did all that God commanded in God's plan. He acted on faith. And recall back in Hebrews 7, when things were not yet unseen in the world, it hadn't rained at that point yet. People didn't know what rain was. Are we talking about water from the sky? But Noah believed God. He acted on faith. And for that, he was declared righteous. And this takes us then to our second point, which is God's provision. First was God's plan Now it's God's provision. And we look in Genesis 7. We'll start with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons, and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water, uh, waters of the flood came upon the earth. So we hear, see here that for 100 years at least, Noah obeyed God. A hundred years. Despite any of the ridicule he may have suffered. Despite anybody laughing at him as he's building this big boat. Despite the fact that he preached the coming judgment. He warned people that it was going to happen. See, this was a guy who was all in. He had everything to lose and he put everything he had. His reputation, his time, his effort. A hundred years or more. Compared to his generation, Noah was righteous before God. And now he's 600 years old. His sons are grown and married. See, we see here, we see something here that has caused people to, to doubt the Bible. In Genesis 6:19, God tells Noah to take two of every kind of bird, animal, and creeping thing. But we just read in Genesis 7:2 and 3 that God tells Noah to take seven pairs of every clean animal, a pair of animals that are unclean, and seven pairs of birds. So which is it? Two of every kind or seven of the clean and two of the unclean. Which which is it? It's both. It's both. The purpose of the pairs, male and female, was to enable the species to reproduce. You had to have a male and a female, so that was their purpose. The purpose of taking extra of the clean animals was for sacrifices. And we'll see that later in Genesis 10. The extra animals were not for eating. He was to take every food, every sort of food with them for them to eat. But you see, God had not given permission yet to eat the animals. So he wasn't eating anything. It was all there for the sacrifices. God later gives permission to eat animals. That comes in Genesis 9. And then we read that Noah did all that the Lord commanded. We see that in Genesis 7, 5. So let's continue, let's, uh, let's look at verse 11 in chapter 7. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life." And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. There's a lot of detail in here and a lot of emphasis on God's provision of putting animals and men into the ark. And two and two, male and female, of every kind. But look at some observations. The Bible gives us a very clear time when things happened. Now, we're not sure of the exact date because the method of counting days has changed since then, but with reference to Noah, we know exactly when things happened. He was 600 years old, two months and 17 days. 600, two months, 17 days old. And then let's consider the timeline. God tells Noah the flood is coming in seven days. So Noah prepares and he starts getting the animals all ready to get into the ark, And then seven days later, the rain starts, the flood begins, and Noah and his family go into the ark. The rain begins, but notice something else. Verse 11 says that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. If you think the water came only from the sky, you would be wrong. Water came from above and water came from below. Remember what we're told about the first three days of creation in Genesis 1? Let's look back there real quick in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. There was and there is a great deal of water stored up on this earth. And this water from the deep was unleashed along with the rain that fell from above. It came from above and it came from below. See, this is a testament to God's power and his majesty. You've heard me say many times that I don't know about climate change or climate chaos, whether the weather is changing or whether it's just cyclical. But I've told you before that I do know this, that God controls the climate. He alone controls the rains and the seas. Listen to what the Lord tells Job in Job 38. And if you haven't spent any time reading Job, especially the back few chapters, it is just absolutely magnificent. You can't can't walk away without just being in awe of God. Job 38.1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy... Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. God is asking Job, who did that? Who has the power to hold back the waters? Clearly, it is God. And there's so many passages about rain and thunder and lightning and drought and wind and storms. I encourage you, to spend some time searching for these. God is sovereign and in control of his creation. And here, with this flood, he demonstrates his power. And we look at verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. It was God that sealed Noah and his family in the ark. We aren't told how God shut them in, but it's clear that Noah didn't close the door on the side of the ark. Noah and his family were shut inside and the rest of the world, that wicked world, was sealed outside. They were sealed off from deliverance. See, the door was the only way into the ark. Remember, the roof was finished a a cubit above the ark. That's about 18 inches The ark itself was about 45 feet high. This means it was about four stories high. So the roof is four stories off the ground with only an 18-inch opening. No one is going into the ark that way. Noah's faith in God and his word led to obedience. If Noah had not heeded the call of God and obeyed, he and his family would not now be safe inside that ark. These five words and the Lord, shut him in, are significant for us. See, it is God who provides for our protection and our escape from judgment. You don't provide it for yourself. No one else can provide it for you. But if you don't heed the call of God and act in faith as Noah did, you will not be saved. You will be sealed off from any hope of deliverance on the day of judgment. But if you are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are also sealed for the day of redemption. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, way back when Ron started preaching? In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." Well, then we read of the judgment itself executed on a sinful humanity. And we'll pick up again back in Genesis 7, starting with verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and in whose nostrils was a breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The rains fell and the fountains of the deep burst for 40 days. But the flood was so great it lasted 150 days and this was over the whole earth, not just a, a localized area, it's over the whole earth. Now, some try to claim that the flood was localized, since people hadn't migrated to the far corners of the earth. There was no need to cover the entire earth with water. But that's not what the Bible says. In verse 19 and 20, it says, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. All the mountains under the whole heaven, not some. And everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Everything, not some. You know, one of the questions posed early to the teaching pastor applicants that had sent their resumes in was whether or not the flood was global or if it was local. And I'll tell you that any applicant who claimed the flood was local was instantly disqualified. This issue goes not just to the fact of a global flood but to how the candidate interprets scripture. The hermeneutic is involved here. Whether or not they believe in a literal translation and that was one of the things that pointed us to that. These 150 days were violent. The waters were rushing and swirling and causing massive destruction with great effect on the geology of the earth. This wasn't just a slow bathtub filling up coming up gently as we see some streams rise. No, it was violent. And this is, from these we see the great sediments and the great deposits and stratification of the earth and the fossilization of animals. See, modern scientists look at the fossil records and they use that to date the earth. They assume that the periods of the earth are static, so they just stack one on top of the other. But they don't take into account the global catastrophic destruction that the flood brought. And how it was slamming things up and moving mountains and destroying things and things were swirling around. This was not just a nice little gentle cruise. This was violent. But you see, God has left evidence of his eternal power and his divine nature just as we are told in Romans 1.20. When you see the fossils, when you see these strata, they are evidence of God's great power. Man is without excuse. And then the destruction ends. So we look in Genesis 8, starting with verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, On the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. When it says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, it doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah right in the middle of the flood, only to suddenly recall, oh, hey, I got this ark floating down here. Instead, it means that God took some type of action. In Exodus 2.24, when God looked down on Israel, who was being oppressed in Egypt, he remembered his covenant with Abram and Isaac and Jacob. And he raised up Moses, the deliverer, from the, to rescue uh, Israel from the Egyptians. But, Rome, but Revelation 16.9 says, And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. In this case, God's remembrance was for judgment. There are many other verses that talk about God remembering people and promises in Genesis and in Exodus and in Psalms. There's also times when God will not remember something. Do you know what that is? Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. It doesn't mean he forgets our sins. It means that he will not take action on our sin. So taking action now, God causes a wind to blow over the earth and the water subside and the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens restrained. The rain from the heavens restrained. More evidence that God controls the climate. Well, verse three tells us that the water receded from the earth continually and at the end of 150 days, the water had abated. Now, are you keeping track of the timeline here? There were 150 days of prevailing water and then 150 days of receding water. So far, Noah and his family and the animals have been in the ark for 300 days. Not just the 40 days and nights that we hear about in the stories. They have been in the ark for 300 days. Verse four says that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Not necessarily on Mount Ararat itself. Mount Ararat's the highest mountain in that range. And it's in modern Turkey, but it doesn't mean that that's where the ark came to rest. It just came to rest in the mountains. We're not told specifically which mountain in the mountains of Ararat it came to rest. The great flood of God's judgment started on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. And now it's the first day of the 10th month. And now the tops of the mountains can be seen. Well God will leave Noah in the ark for another 70 days and I'm going to leave him there till next time. But I want to conclude today with looking at the significance this passage holds for us today. As I said last week it's more than just a story. The account of Noah, the ark and the flood points us to Jesus Christ. God determined to judge the world because of its wickedness. But he showed grace to Noah, a man deemed righteous because of his faith. God told Noah to build an ark through which Noah, his family, and the animals, the birds, and the creeping things would be delivered from the destruction of the flood. This was God's plan. And when the flood came, Noah, his family, the animals, the birds, and the creeping things were safe on the ark. After they entered the ark, God shut them in. He sealed them inside the ark, and he sealed the wicked outside. This was God's provision. From the beginning of time, God's plan was to punish sin. But he would give grace to those he chose. And today, he gives grace just as he gave grace to Noah. He gives grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And just as God provided the ark to deliver Noah, he provided Jesus to deliver us. Noah and his family entered the ark through the door. There was only one way into the ark and its deliverance. Today, there is only one way to salvation, and that's through Christ. Noah, in faith, trusted God and entered the ark. In faith, we must trust God through Jesus. And just as God sealed Noah and his family inside the ark, today we are sealed by his Holy Spirit. See, the storm may rage around us, Destruction may seem looming at every turn, but we are safe in the arms of Jesus. We need only have faith. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we we look at this, Father, we can see the, the prefiguring of our Lord and Savior, grace shown to a man, a plan that you had, a provision that you made. And it was you and you alone that shut him in, that sealed everyone in there, just as you do for us. Your plan all along was to send Jesus to die for our sins. Father, we know that a judgment is coming. We can see the effects of wickedness all around us. But we know that if we have faith in Christ and Christ alone, if we have a genuine faith in Christ, we know that we are safe from the flood of destruction that is coming. Father, we know that we are safe and delivered according to your promise, according to your faithfulness. You never broke your word. From the first time in the Garden of Eden when you declared a redeemer, Father, you didn't break your word. You preserved a remnant of mankind. And in doing so, showed how you would preserve those who are faithful to you. Father, as we look around us with the floods that are going on now, even in Hollister, with our neighbors and our friends, Father, we pray for their safety. We pray for their deliverance. And Father, not just deliverance from the floodwaters. We pray for their deliverance from sin and from the effects of sin and from eternal death. But Father, let us never forget that when we see these things, we recall your power, your majesty, your glory, that you are sovereign over all, and that in your love and your mercy and your grace, you have provided... A way for us out of judgment. Father, in all this, we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.